You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Good morning, Coastal LA. How is everybody doing this morning? Great. Um, We, first of all, just want to thank you guys so much for having us. Uh, You've been so hospitable. We're from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm telling you, the Southern hospitality is not as great as what we have received here this weekend. So thank you so much for that. Um, A couple of things. Um, You guys, I'm going to tell you, and I don't just give out compliments just to be giving them out, but... This is the best looking church I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what you expect in LA, but, um, but amazing, amazing. And so um, we're just so grateful to be here this morning and really want to thank uh, Steve and Jackie for having us come out. We are so appreciative of them. You have some you. great leaders here um, amongst you. So Amen. I just want you guys to know that. Especially uh, given the topic that uh, we were here to discuss this weekend, uh, there, there really aren't a lot of leaders that are open enough yep. uh, to do that. And so you really have something special in them here. And I know you probably already know that. But um, I wanted to let you know today, um, I know Ben and I are, were originally down to speak together. And as we were doing um, the lesson and Ben was going through some of the things that he wanted to talk about, I discovered that the Holy Spirit doesn't always have to speak through me. And so his story is really compelling. And I think given the time that we have, I decided that I wasn't going to speak with him today. Um, I'm usually not the type of girl that shrinks back, but I always want to live by the Spirit as best I can. And so you're going to hear from Ben today. It's amazing. You'll see. But I just wanted to say hello and thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. So thank you. And I'll be down listening to the message with you. But thanks so much. Oh, because you're so good looking, I did want to take a picture before I leave here. Hold on. Amen. Uh, you guys can tell that I'm very blessed. Uh, Tam and I, we met uh, when I was 15 years old. And uh, I know uh, I look older, but Tammy is actually older than I am. And so uh, we, we met in high school and uh, went on our first date. She had to pick me up because I didn't have a driver's license. But. Uh, We've we've had a chance to uh, really grow in every area of our life. If you ever go to my Facebook page, uh, you will see our prom picture. Uh, You will see pictures of her with me at West Point. Uh, You will see pictures early in our marriage when our kids were small. And you'll see pictures of us now when our kids are young adult. I I, I say that because people go to the Facebook page, she looks exactly the same. I don't look exactly the same. And so sometimes I tell people, if you look at the pictures, it looks like she's been married three times. Uh, but it, but it, I'm the same person. I just have, you know, I've, I've grown uh, over time. Anyway, it is, uh, it's great to be here uh, with the Coastal LA Church. I just want to really double down on what Tammy shared about Steve and Jackie. We are just so uh, grateful for their intentionality to have us out here. It is great to be uh, here with a church that is so uh, racially and ethnically diverse, economically diverse. Uh, you guys are a visual image of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. All tribes, all languages, all ethnicities. At the end of time, the vision is that in heaven, we're going to all stand up and worship God, everybody together, and we're going to say amen, amen. And so you guys are already on your way, and I'm very grateful. Now, That being said, it does not mean that having courageous conversations about race and reconciliation is not something that you need to hear because I believe that the goal of the kingdom of God from here on out to heaven is a great deal more than just what we look like on Sundays and is what we are really like 
uh, as the brother prayed this morning, being the salt and the light uh, of the world and of the earth, and that the church is supposed to be this, this transformative body of Christ that doesn't just lean in on itself, but it, it, it allows itself to go out and transform the world in which we live. And hopefully by the end of the sermon, that's where I'll get to uh, here this morning. Uh, I want to do something totally different. Uh, let me see. Is this working here? It got it. Uh, and talking about courageous conversations, I want to start off uh, and do this today by talking about the art of storytelling. As uh, Steve mentioned, I'm working on a, uh, actually another doctorate degree right now. I, I don't do it because I'm, I'm just really interested in school. I actually had a professor uh, that came to me one time and knew that I was interested in the topic of race and reconciliation. And he said, if you want to do this doctorate program, I, I have a wealthy friend that's going to pay for it. And so I still didn't want to do it because uh, I just didn't want to go back to school. And so I started making up all the stuff about, well, you had to apply a year ago and you had to take this standardized test and you had to give in writing samples and do all those things. He says, all of that stuff, I've talked to the dean. If you want to go back and do this program, he's going to waive everything. So, so by that time, you end up going back. So I'm finishing up that program now and I'm doing research. Uh, in Atlanta on uh, racial reconciliation and starting with the church and the body of Christ and really discovering how God wants us to be as disciples of Jesus uh, in the world. We are part of a great fellowship. Tim and I are on the uh, International Church of Christ uh, diversity team. So we get the opportunity to get a view of the entire country uh, and how many of our churches are doing and be a part of a great think tank of uh, just great brothers and sisters who are putting content out and curriculums out for us uh, to be thoroughly equipped to be the disciples that God has uh, called us to be. So I'm very, very grateful to do that. The thing I'm discovering, though, in my research is that one way that we can have courageous conversations, just if the leaders, I talked about us getting to the point of having awareness and then moving to acknowledgement and then moving to advocacy. You can talk to the leaders all about that. I don't want to be repetitive today. But what I want to do think, talk about is the way I believe that we can have courageous conversations, this applies to race, but applies to many other subjects that are hard to talk about, is for us to understand the power of telling stories. The thing that I've come to realize is that when we sit down in a room and we begin to talk about tough topics, we always have a story that we want to share. And so we begin to talk about, well, you got to remember that time that, let me tell you what happened when I was 13 years old and I was in middle school and I was this and I was this. We began to tell a story and a story requires someone to listen and someone to tell a story. So in James, it tells us, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So there's a part of us that we need to learn to tell our stories, but we need to be good listeners. And I talked about that yesterday with the leaders. How do we tell our own unique stories? Anthropologists say, that the thing that makes us human is our ability to tell stories. Before there was written communication, what we understand about the Hebrew Bible and how it was translated went through what's called oral tradition, where people told people they spoke it and it was passed on from generation to generation to generation until things are written down. Now we have social media and communication and stories are told all the time. You can just get an update, someone just added to their story, right? And it's them putting a picture and a comment. They're adding to their story. Everybody has their own story, and we all have our stories. The Bible itself is a love story. And it's full of 66 other books with chapters that are all about this great love story, about this great God who has done all God can do to bring us into a relationship with him to bring him back to the experience of being naked and unashamed like Adam and Eve and walking in the cool of the evening with the Lord and being in relationship with the divine. So from Genesis to Revelation is this great love story where God is trying to reconnect and bring us back to him. It's a love story and it's full of books and all the books themselves are another story of God's grand story. The Gospels, for example, is a story about Jesus 
We get to learn about Jesus through the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Acts, the book of Acts, story of the early church. We get to hear about the stories of the early church. And I'm going to talk about John 4 today, the parable of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. But that's a story, and that's a story that Jesus tells. It's a story of a courageous conversation that takes place. And in all these stories that we get to read and learn about, there are just layers of stories upon stories. And sometimes there's a backstory, as we'll see today, that we need to understand backstories to fully appreciate the grand story of how we fit into what God is doing. So I want to talk about the power of storytelling here this morning. And I think the most effective way to do that is uh, for me to tell my own story. Hope I didn't go too far. Uh-oh. There we go. I got it. Let me tell you a story. This is why TED Talks work. If you watch TED Talks, they come out 18, 20 minutes, and they don't do no introduction. They just come out and get into it. I want to tell you a story. This is my parents, uh, Barbara Valentine and Ben Barnett Sr. I'm the second. My son is the third. This is around 1962. 63 maybe. Um, my mother was from West Virginia. My dad was from Virginia, and they met in college. For those who are familiar with African-American fraternities and sororities, my father was an Omega, sci-fi. My mom was a Delta, and they met pledging together. They were in the same class. Uh, they met when they were 20 and 19, respectively. Fell in love, got married. Uh, my father was going to transfer from one college to Howard University. And back then, in between transferring, he got drafted and went into the Army and was going to be stationed in Germany and was heading to Vietnam. So he goes to Germany. He gets injured in Germany. He comes back to the United States. And not too soon after that, I was born in 1967. In 1967, I was born, 1971, our life changes. Uh, I'm four years old by this time, on November the 7th, 1971, I'm four. Uh, my brother is three, Brian, and my mom is pregnant. With a little girl is what I heard. It's a Sunday afternoon, and I can't believe I actually remember all of this, but I remember being in my family room, my parents' house, it was Sunday afternoon. My mom was going to a Women's Day program at church. It was in the afternoon. And uh, I remember it because back then there used to be a TV show called Adam 12 about police. And, I, and my brother and I had cars, Adam 12. And so we were in the family room playing with the police cars. And we wanted to go with my mom, and I remember crying to go with her, and she said, no, stay with your dad, because my dad was actually finishing up college and working, and we didn't get much time with him. So we're in the, the family room, and we're on his both legs playing cowboys and doing the cars and just jumping around happy on the Sunday afternoon. And then there's a ring, doorbell rings, the door opens, and it was two police officers. And they're standing at the door, and my brother and I get excited because it's Adam 12. And then all of a sudden, we see my dad walk away, and he just walks down the hallway and just disappears. And we're sitting there in the family room with the police and the next-door neighbor. And I'm not sure how long it took after that, but my father comes walking back down the hallway. He grabs my brother and I, takes us back to the bedroom. He sits on the floor. He is just weeping, weeping. And uh, he's trying to explain to us that my mom had been killed in a car accident. We don't understand death. And so I'm trying to reassure my father that she's just out late, you know, what a four-year-old. She'll be back. She'll be back later. And then I remember later on that day, she wasn't back. And then going to bed that night and waking up the next morning, she still wasn't back. And my father, every time he would try to explain death to her, like she... She's not coming back. We just didn't get it. And you can imagine that at four and three. At that time, my father was 27. My mom was 26. And so he had lost his wife. 
And not only did he suffer that loss, but he was about to lose, lose his two children because in 1971, the courts did not think that a 27-year-old African-American man could raise two boys by himself. So they, the courts were trying to take us to split us up to either go to one grandparent, another grandparent. It was a whole court stuff. Uh, I vaguely remember any of that. I remember my family being all around. Uh, fortunately, my paternal grandmother moved in and satisfied the court and so we could stay with my father. He fought really hard. So he was fighting hard to make sure he kept his boys. He's dealing with the grief of losing his, losing his wife, and he's 26, I can't, 26 years old. Uh, by this time, they had purchased their second house. They were doing well. My mom was a school teacher. My dad had done engineering. It was, you know, they had great jobs, but they had this incredible loss uh, that was a part of our family. And to top it off, the guy who did it, and this is important to the story, uh, was evading the police on a chase. And he had a head-on collision with her, killing her instantly, but he didn't get prosecuted. Because he was white and wealthy. And my father didn't talk much about this. This conversation I'm telling you right now, this part from here on, I just had this conversation with my dad a year ago. For 45 years, he couldn't really talk about it. And he talked about what it was like to be 26 years old and be, into, be in a certain part of this one county in Virginia where this person's last name represented wealth nationally and that his family were the mayors and the council people, and there was no one in the court that was his color but family. And so he suffered greatly. The, the person that really suffered in all of this was my grandmother. And this is her with my mom on the left when my mom was a baby. My grandmom, her story is... She was basically born in North Carolina because her father was black, her mom was white. As you can see, she looks like she's probably mixed. And she was. But when her parents decided to get married, the KKK threatened to kill her father, so they left and ended up in West Virginia. My grandmother came to me, and this is how you, you fill out this story here. My grandmother came to me when I was about five years old, and she was just, every time she would see me, she would just weep and say, you look like your mom. And it destroyed her, because that night was only her daughter, that was like her best friend. And it was just tragic all the time. Everywhere I went, people cried for a decade. And as I got older, I started to get it. And my grandmother sat down with me, and she says, I want to tell you something. She says, in this world, and my nickname back then was Bam Bam. And she said, Bam Bam, let me tell you something. This world is cruel. And if you have got to be careful for white people, especially if they're rich, because if they can get away with murder, what else do you think they can get away with? And every time I would go see her, she would say the same thing. This, I saw this bitterness in her. And actually a bitterness is a half of her. My father, on the other hand, had his own narrative. And my father came to me. And my father made sure that I didn't develop any prejudice or racial attitudes. Like my father intentionally lived in mixed neighborhoods. My father intentionally put us in mixed schools as, as much as he possibly could. My father intentionally told us that we needed to treat all people as if they're made in the image of God. Yet I know of stories now that I didn't know then that I actually had to have uncles and stuff follow my father around because my father was so tempted to strike vengeance on the person who didn't get persecuted. But he never showed that to me. And today, he don't know I know that. I know that from other family members because he don't talk about it. 
And so there is this, it just changed the nature of our family. My father came to me. He says, I'm going to sit you down this world. We're all created uh, in God's image. Uh, the world is, is going to be as fair as you make it. But let me tell you something, son. He says, you are a young black man and you're going to live in the world and you can't be average. And I think part of him saying that, I've, I've lived it out. I went to West Point. Keep going back to school. You know, you can't be average. And my dad goes, you got to be excellent to be on par with the next white person. That's what he would say. I'm five and I'm getting these stories. The reason why I share these stories with you is because we all are, have a, a story in us and it's called a, a family of origin narrative. It's a story that every last one of us walk around with. It is where we get our fundamental beliefs about the world, about ourselves. It is conscious. It is unconscious. It is what drives us. It is what motivates us. Sometimes we might be born in a family that was poor, impoverished or had hard times and we rise above that. Or we might be born in that situation, stay in that situation. We don't transcend it. We don't transform it. But that story is in us. And it is our parents, it is our siblings, our aunties, our uncles, it is our coaches, our teachers, our priests, our pastors, uh, our best friends, our family friends, the people we went on vacation with, the neighbor across the street, our classmates, all of these people and the communities in which we grew up that, that all created this narrative about who we are and how we navigate our, our way through the world. And the reason why we have a hard time talking about that is because we don't realize that when we're having conversations with people about anything, those stories are with us. And they become the lens through which we see the world. And so as experiences happen, they're filtered through these stories. We have major stories and minor stories. And as we go through the rest of our lives, we are even having our stories affirmed or denied. My grandmother said, look, I'm telling you, watch out for white people because if they are wealthy and they're white, don't trust them. They're going to get you. And if they can get away with murder, they can get away with anything. So when I'm in the sixth grade, and we, fifth grade, and we create this paper mache dinosaur for the newspaper. They come and want to take a picture of it. And I remember being in the classroom in the fifth grade, and the newspaper said, uh, excuse me, teacher, we would like to have your tallest student stand next to the dinosaur so that we can have a perspective of how big this dinosaur is. And she says, Ben, come here. I was the tallest student. And as I was walking to the dinosaur, the newspaper said, no, no, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean uh, tall, tall. Your best student. She goes, that's also him. <laughs> Do you know I didn't take a picture with the dinosaur? It was my best friend, Stephen. He was white. He was shorter and he wasn't smarter. <laughs> and I remember going, my grandmother was right. Being at West Point with my three football friends, one of them had enough money, bought a BMW. On a Saturday, we don't have a football game. We go down to a sports bar to watch the game. We come out, three police cars pull up, locked and loaded, and throw us to the ground. Why? Because they think we stole the car. They told us we stole the car. And it wasn't until we showed them West Point IDs and demanded to be taken in to the military police that they let us go. That affirmed my grandmother's story. So I'm just saying, I'm using me as an example, and this is not a judgment to white people. I'm just saying, this, this is my story. You got your story? Uh, when you get a microphone one day, you can tell your story. <laughs> I'm just telling mine today, and I'm just, I'm trying to be real because this, you don't know that about me. If I didn't tell you that, you don't know that's how I see the world. I can't help it. So when I watch the news and I see people being shot and killed that look like me, it's through that lens. So when I go somewhere and I'm talking about race or something, and they go, why don't you just get over it? Slavery's been gone. I got, this ain't got nothing to do with slavery. 
And we have these stories. I have these stories. And you have these stories because they come from our family of origin narrative. And this is what it kind of looks like. We all know the iceberg, right? And what I realize with people, even when we sit together and sing together, I realize that, that we, we are on the surface. You know, when you see an iceberg, you only see 10% of the iceberg, 90% is underwater, and icebergs are massive. There are some icebergs that are big as cities, and you go, that's only 10%? And the rest of it is underwater, and that's how it is with all of us. Some of you right now are sitting here thinking about your stories. You're thinking about your pain and your experiences. There's also affirmations that we can think about as well. And all of those are under there, how we see the world, what we really believe. And what happens is that's painful for us to excavate that. And when we're having conversations with people, that stuff is underneath. When Tam and I do marriage counseling and coaching with people getting married, we always have this one time we get together and we say, you guys need to get together as a couple and talk about your family of origin because you, you're, the two of you are getting married, but you are bringing your families together. You are bringing all that stuff with you, and the husband and the wife don't know the depth of that stuff. So let's talk about your values. Let's talk about what you believe, and those are things. So when I'm talking about having courageous conversations, I'm not talking about, hey, how are you doing? Hey, brother, hey, sister, love you. See, how was, how was, how was worship? Man, great sermon. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of conversation to go, what's the worst day of your life? What pains you the most? What embarrasses you? What do you think but don't say? That's intimacy. That's relationship. That's the depth of conversation that we really need to be able to get to. I want us to, uh, I didn't talk a lot. I ain't got to the Bible yet. I want to get to the Bible, John 4. And this is a long chapter. I wasn't going to read it, but, you know, the Bible says faith comes through hearing, right? And so I'm, I'm going to read John 4. Bear with me. Before I do that, I have another story to tell you. And the story I want to tell you is about the Jews and Samaritans. It's a backstory. And you need to know the backstory so that you get the story of John 4. So the Samaritan woman and Jesus are key in this, this whole thing, and along with his disciples and the village of Samaritans that come out. But you got to understand that the hatred between the Jews and Samaria and the Samaritans ran deep. I'm talking about deep. They, they, it ran so deep that Jews and Samaritans literally avoided one another. If the Jew came to a Samaritan territory, it walked around it. Didn't matter how, how long it took, how much it cost, they avoided contact. And the reason why they did that, it, it goes back a long, long history. It actually could go back as far as the patriarchs. You had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob wrestled with an angel. His name is changed to Israel, which means one wrestled with God, one overcomes. Israel has 12 sons. He shows favoritism to the youngest son, Joseph. That causes problem. They become the 12 tribes of Israel, of Jacob, and then eventually... Those 12 tribes break up into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, there's 10 tribes. In the southern kingdom, there's two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Eventually, they be known as Jews from the word Judah. In 722 B.C., almost 800 years before Jesus, the northern kingdom decides they're not going to, I'm really summing this up short, they're not going to obey God. God says, if you don't obey me and the covenant, I will allow an enemy to come in and take you over. Assyria comes in, bombs them out. They bring in pagan idol worship, and then they intermarry, which is a bad thing for the Jewish people. And so they begin to marry the people, and the area that they're in is called Samaria. So they become the Samaritans, and they're half Jew, and they're half Gentile. And then another 120, 40 years go by, 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, the same thing happened to them. Babylon comes in with Nebuchadnezzar. They wipe out the southern kingdom. They take over Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They destroy the wall. you got Ezra, Nehemiah, and all these people that are coming back to rebuild some 70 years later. And when they get back 70 years later, they face opposition from really a lot of the Samaritans that are there. They call their half-breed cousins. 
And because of that, they decided that we can no longer be together. And so for 700 years until we get to Jesus, they are ethnically, racially, worship, spiritual, divided. And these monotheistic, purebred Jews don't want to have any interest in these half-breed Samaritans that obviously were weak and intermarried and gave up their faith. And so I want you to imagine generations going by where that family of origin story is being told over and over and over and over and over again. And that is the story that this Samaritan woman is operating in when she meets Jesus. Amen? So let's read the story. John 4, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. It's a great thing. We should be doing that. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea, went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground of Jacob, had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, And you see the story coming out. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which is true. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Go call your husband and call, come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you said you have no husband. And the fact is, you've had five. And the man that you are down with is not your husband. So what you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Wouldn't we all? Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah that called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples return and they're surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asks, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving the water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. We feel that way when we encounter Jesus. We feel like, man, Jesus knows it all. Could this be the Christ? And then they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, did someone bring him food? <laughs> My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I'd ever done. So the Samaritans came to him. They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the Savior of the world. Here's an observation here. In verse 4, Jesus says something. It's a simple verse that we might ignore. He said he had to go through Samaria. Why? And I asked, why did he have to go through Samaria? And you only know that by reading the end of the story. The end of the story, these Samaritans, this division between Jew and Samaritan existed so long. The good news is at the end of the story, I want you to imagine a whole village of Samaritans coming and saying, we now believe. And not because of just that woman's testimony. We now believe, because we talked to you, and we believe that you are the Savior of the world. And that is good news. The reason why we come together as disciples of Jesus and we worship, because at the end of our lives, the end of the story, we want people to say that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We want people who might not hear it to be able to say that Jesus is, is the Savior of the world. And so Jesus says, there's 800 years of division here where the Samaritans and Jews have all doubled down on division and disunity and hatred and bitterness and frustration and a lack of forgiveness. And they learn from one generation to the next generation. And Jesus says, I am here to tell you today that I'm about to put the end to this. I'm about to change that story that has been going on for about 800 years. Jesus says, I have got a new story for you, and I'm going to change that story, and I'm going to start with one woman, and that's why I have to go through Samaria. He said, I have to have this courageous conversation with this one person. He had to do it. And the way he does it is he initiates it. He comes and he's going through Samaria and the Bible says that he actually went, he found the most Jewish place to land. He walks in. There's a lot of places you go into Samaria. He goes, I want to go all the way back to Jacob. I'm going back to where this stuff started. And he finds his way and he goes there and he says, okay, this is the well of Jacob, Joseph, all that. I'm going to sit right here. The woman comes up and he could have sat there. I know it was awkward. It was uncomfortable because men didn't usually go to the well and she shows up and she's probably shunned by her own Samaritan community because she's had all these husbands and she got a guy now that's not her husband. Then she shows up and there's a man there and then Jesus, almost like you could be sitting in the bar or something, goes, you want a drink? You want to get me a drink? And notice what she says. She is really sticking to her, her family of origin story. You want to give me a drink? Look at her response. You a Jew. Man, she got her story. You a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're black. I'm white. You're Asian. I'm Latino. I'm Hispanic. Well, I don't, what are you doing here? We don't come out and say what this woman said. But in our world, we act like, wait, we over here. This is a black community. It's a black church. Why is she here? What's he doing? They know what kind of neighborhood this is? Why are you here? This is a good school. You trying to leave bad school to come to good school? We can't have all the people leaving bad schools to come to good schools. That's going to make the good schools bad schools. So when a person that's a bad person from a bad school comes to a good school and too many of the bad people come to the good school, the good school is no longer a good school, so now we got to find a gooder school. <laughs> I know that's not a word. It's like, but we, we got to find something. We, we can't do that. We, we, we got to now go because we don't, 
We're in different, we're different economic status and education. We're just, we're just different. You're black, I'm white. I'm just, just, what are you doing? And that's what she did. And then Jesus, every time, is trying to transform her story. And Jesus does it this way. He says, if you knew the gift of God and he who asked you for a drink, what he's saying is, you don't know me. This is an opportunity right here. And because you're so stuck in this family of origin story, you're missing it. You don't even know me. If you knew me, this conversation would be different. And we don't take time to know people. You know, back in Atlanta, you know, we uh, are six separate churches in Atlanta. And uh, our ministry staff, we still meet together. And uh, we have staff meetings. And this is 2016. We're at one of those staff meetings. And uh, I'm sitting around the room struggling, the whole staff meeting. And I felt bad. I'm a, this is, so I'm, this is part of my story. This, been, this is another chapter of my story. So I'm sitting in the staff meeting room, and I love these brothers. We've been serving together for 20 years, some of us, if not more. The guy that put me in the ministry, he's in the room. And at the end of the meeting, we're going to have lunch, and they said, Ben, can you close us out in prayer? And I go, I can't. <laughs> and they go, what? I said, I can't. So they're going to ask somebody else to pray. And I said, no, no, I, I really mean, I want to, I can't. And then the Holy Spirit's like, man, you got to be open. You got to be vulnerable. How do people know what you feel and think if you don't say nothing? And then I'm talking to myself, but I've done that before. That didn't work because people are just going to tell me I'm defensive. <laughs> so I'm going through this whole conversation, and the Holy Spirit says, speak up. <laughs> and I said, okay, I want to tell you why I'm struggling today, brothers. I'm mad at all of you. I'm just... I'm just, I'm just really, I'm mad today. I know it's not you. I said, but man, I'm just, I don't want to pray with y'all. And they go, well, what's going on? Then I started crying because I felt bad because of how I felt. And I felt like I was using the people, particularly the white brothers in the room, as a scapegoat for my own pain. Because early that morning, I was at home watching the news and I saw this black guy in Oklahoma next to a white SUV with his hands up in the air. He got shot by the police and was killed. And from the helicopter, they looked down and they said, this is a big black bad guy. And I was like, oh, man. I can understand. You can look from a helicopter and see big. He could tell he was a big guy because you could see, he, you can look at the SUV. His hands are above the SUV. I go, yep, I got it. He's big. And I look down, I go, yep, he black. But I go, how do you see bad? How do you see bad? So I was just struggling with that because I am big. I'm trying to get smaller, though. I'm working on it. <laughs> I, I, but it ain't working here in L.A., I'm telling you that right now. I'm, I'm big. I'm black. And I know what it's like to walk around and people have seen me as bad. People grab their purses when they, I, I walk around and get on the elevator. I got to worry about what, how I'm dressed and what I'm wearing, that I don't look threatening because these racial microaggressions that I experience during the day. And I want to just get on the elevator and go, hey, I'm educated and I'm, you know, I'm friendly and I'm a pastor of a church. And like I want to, you know, just announce, hey, there's no here. I've never stolen anything. I do need to try this sometime. But what happened was, I, I'm, I understand. I know my story. I know what bothers me. I know how my family told me things and it fed into it. So I'm fully aware of my story and I, how I interpret the world. And I realized what I was doing that day in staff was not fair to those brothers. But you know what they did? They said, man, bro, we sorry. And what I said to them, I said, man, we've been together all these years and y'all don't really know me. And I just wish when I walked in the room, I know, did y'all see the guy get shot? They goes, yeah, we all saw it. I go, that don't, that don't bother you, but it bothers me. That's me. It's my son. That's what I think about. It's just me and this other people choked out and other people getting shot. I'm just like, I'm just tired. And they just listened and listened. 
And they said, bro, we are sorry. From now on, we're going to consider how you feel because I, I allow them to go under the tip of the iceberg and see what bothers me and pains me. And this is how real conversations happen. And so they said, let us pray. She, she sticks with her story. She, Jesus says that, if you knew me to give whatever, then she comes back and says, are you greater than our father Jacob? She goes, I'm going all the way back Old Testament on you, Jesus. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And then Jesus comes in and says, everyone who drinks this, whatever. She is doubling down on her story. She is sticking with her story, and Jesus is trying to transform her story. Then in verse 19 to 20, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She switches it to church. She just got to the worship. Hey, look, we, I don't understand. Jesus is trying to change the narrative and to get her to see something else, and she keeps going back to the Jew and Samaritan divide. She's persistent with it. And you know what? We are, even if we don't know it. We stick with it, and we don't allow Jesus to change how we see people and how we navigate our way in the world, not as citizens of the U.S., but as citizens of the kingdom of God, Amen. where we were born again into it and where we have Jesus, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, that said, and he is the head of the church, and that all things were created by him and for him so that he might have supremacy. And in the Great Commission, he says, all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. And so we see everything through the lens of Jesus who wants to change that narrative. Went too far again. Sorry about that. And so here it is at the end, the new story. All the Samaritans come out. And, uh, and I just love this part. And here's the part I really want to get to. And how Jesus having one conversation, a courageous conversation, and it is courageous because he says some stuff to her that some of us, we just don't, hey, don't sit with. And I know sometimes we might think race and other things like that. They're, they're not reserved for the church. They're inappropriate topics. And I think about how inappropriate it must have been to ask a woman for a drink and how inappropriate it must have been to be at that well with that woman all by himself and how inappropriate it is for her to go, I, I believe this. And he goes, go get your husband. She says, well, I'm not married. And then she, how inappropriate it is, he really got into her business. As you've had five of them jokers. And look, the, <laughs> the dude you with right now is not even in your husband. Most of us would call that an inappropriate conversation, right? The reason why is because we're reading it as if we are the Samaritan woman and not Jesus. But if you're the person that think is an inappropriate conversation, all it is saying is that a, a synonym for inappropriate is uncomfortable. She was uncomfortable with Jesus getting all in her husband, boyfriend, you know, purity kind of business and talk about all that. But that was the stuff that got her because no one else. She said, uh oh, man, you just told me everything I've ever done. I am everything I've ever, I'm wide open right here. And so that's what she got. And here is the dullness of the disciples. And this is important. This woman after a courageous conversation, goes back to all these Samaritans and said, come and see. I found the Messiah. I found the Christ. I found the church you need to be a part of. Come and see what Jesus is doing. The man had told me everything I've ever did. And all of a sudden, this group of Samaritans start walking out. They talk to Jesus a little bit. They tell Jesus, we no longer believe because of this one woman's testimony. We now believe because we've talked to you and we believe that you are the savior of the world. The disciples who had gone to the store <laughs> to get some food, they come back. When they left Jesus, they come back and they go, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. He says, but no one said nothing. They saw it. They, they saw it, they go, the way we need to respond to this is silence. <laughs> Don't say nothing. And then they saw all the Samaritans coming. 
and they're walking up, and you know they see them. You, you, they, you gotta see them. And they don't say nothing. And they are so dull, they're gonna put their head in the sand, and they're so fleshly and so dull that while this great thing is happening, they go, Jesus, did you eat? Did somebody bring you, somebody make a run for you? Did you get your sandwich? And then Jesus looks at them and go, food? I got food you guys know nothing to talk. Look, you didn't left. When you left, I was here to get a sip of water. The whole time you was gone, I've done the work that you're supposed to be doing. I started with a courageous conversation with one person. It has now turned to a whole village, the division that you guys have had for eight centuries while you went to the store. I didn't change the world while you were at the store. And you're going to come back and ask me if I got a sandwich? And he goes, look, open your eyes. Open your eyes. The harvest is right, right now. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity right now. The reason why I'm so passionate about race and culture and diversity is because I believe in the church. I believe in the body of Christ. I believe that Jesus' death came to destroy the dividing wall of hostility and to make the two one. That's what I believe. And I believe that in a world, particularly in North America and the United States, where all you got to do is turn on the TV and you can see how divided we are in so many different areas, that the church is the light. It is the salt. And we have an opportunity. And I think Jesus would come here and go, quit being silent. Do not pretend you don't see what I know you see. Get out of your flesh. This ain't about food. It's not about eating. It's about doing the will and the work of God. And so we get to be a part of that. Right now, we get to celebrate the communion. And we get to involve ourselves in the symbols of bread and juice representing the body and blood of Jesus. We get to partake in this great meal that so many people before us have been doing over and over and over again. And as we take communion this morning, I want you to think about this. I want you to reflect upon this story. And I want you to just consider the impact of having the courage to have one conversation and to believe that from that one conversation, that it can transform many, many, many lives. And when we change our story, we literally change the world. And as we take the bread and juice today, uh, I'm so grateful that on the cross Jesus died and the Bible says he, he preached peace to one group and peace to, an, peace to another. And he really took away, demolished the wall of hostility between Jew and Samaritan, Jew and Gentile, and brought them all into, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, one humanity. Let us pray. God, we are so grateful to be here today, and we're so grateful to have your word that we believe that it spoke to our minds and hearts this morning. God, as we take the, the bread that represents your body that was broken and beaten, and crucified on the cross. So we take the, the juice that represents the blood that was shed for us and the forgiveness of our sins. Help us to, to reflect upon the lessons that are learned here today. God, give us courage in light of the cross to be the people that you have called us to be. We love you and we thank you and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us. 